You are listening to Fellowship Around the Table. All right, welcome everybody to the weekly chat. I am your host this week, Heath Casey, and I have a very special guest, but special friend in the studio today, the one and only Scott L. Johnson. <laughs> I'm surprised you remembered the L there, Heath. I've heard the whole speech about yeah, I know. The L. I know. Probably many times. <laughs> no, no, I think just once. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm so happy you're here today. Long to talk about this book and this medium with you. And it's a book from the Bible that you've taught for a long time. And that's the book of Job. I have. Yeah. So you've been teaching this book here in our impact ministry. You've taught this book all over this community, and you've taught this book all over the world now. I wouldn't say all over the world, but I've taught it many times in Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So I've seen you teach it. It's very evident that you love to teach this book. Yep. Scott, who reads Job? Why do you love this book? That is a fantastic question. So as I've taught the book, and as I just talk to people about it, I find uh, they kind of fall into three camps. They don't know anything about it. They can't even quote anything from the book, except maybe they've heard of the patience of Job. Some people find it very depressing. Mm. They, they can't even open it because they're just really depressed by it. And other people find it fascinating. Mm. And I fall into that category. So something that I would say is I never set out to teach it. And I love it when people ask me why I teach Job. I never decided one day I'm going to learn about Job so I can teach it. <laughs> But Heath, I have 23 topics that I teach currently that when I get a, a new class or something like that, I offer to them. And none of them is on there because I decided to teach it one day and then did the research. Mm. They're all on there because God has worked on me, showed me things bit by bit, not all at once, but bit by bit over a long period of time. And that's what happened with Job. I read it for probably 20 years, I didn't see anything that I teach in it today. Wow. I just thought the dialogue between Job and his friends was interesting. It reminded me of a U.S. presidential election. Okay, I gotta hear this. Yeah, it's, it gets it devolves pretty quickly. It devolves pretty yeah. quickly. That seems to be uh, getting worse and worse every cycle. It does. Yes, it sure does. <laughs> so, at some point, you decided that you you started observing some things and you were going to teach this book. Tell us about that. Like, when did this start with you? Yeah, I first taught it in the fall of 2013 here at Fellowship Bible Church. Okay. And honestly, I feel like God just shows me these things. And I don't have visions. I'm not talking about an audible thing or a, a yeah. dream or something like that. But I literally have these aha moments, or I would say, with no disrespect, I have oh my God moments, mm -hmm. and they're really God moments, and I feel like he showed me something, and little by little, I had enough things in the book of Job that I really wanted to teach it. But I would tell you that how I teach it today bears little resemblance, and the number of things that I bring out today is far greater than that first session. Is that right? Yeah. So you first taught it and kind of started a really fall in love with that book in 13? I kind of fell in love with it earlier than earlier that, than that but I, it had it got enough critical mass that I thought, I, I, I don't want to keep this to myself. Mm -hmm. I need to share it. Yeah. And some nine, 10 years later, yeah, you probably can't count how many times you've gotten to share this book. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit of background. I love how you divided, you know, people have kind of three camps about mm -hmm. this book, really no knowledge 
either they're, they just think it's fantastic or it's depressing to them. Yeah. But for that camp that really doesn't know much about it, whether whether it's pronounced Job or Job. Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> I bet that was a long time ago for you. <laughs> it probably was. <laughs> it probably was. Yeah. But can you kind of summarize this book for us in a couple minutes to kind of give us a framework? I sure can. And I okay. love doing this in the class. And, and I do this at the start of every class for whether it's five weeks I have or it's eight weeks. So basically in chapter one, Satan wipes out all of Job's stuff. In chapter two, Satan wipes out all of Job's health. Hmm. And at the end of chapter two, his friends come. In chapter three, Job breaks a long silence by wishing that he was dead. The essence of chapter three is Job saying, I wish I was dead. Chapters four through 25 are the interaction that Job has with his three friends. And this is the section that kept me coming back because I found this dialogue so fascinating. And I'll, I'll summarize that in a moment. Chapters 26 through 31, Job gives sort of one final, very eloquent speech. All the speeches are really artful and really eloquent. Then a younger man, Elihu, speaks in chapters 32 through 37. God himself speaks for four chapters, Mm -hmm. chapters 38 through 41. And then at the end of the book in chapter 42, it sort of has two sections. The first one is Job repents, six verses. Job repents. And then through the end of the book, Job is restored. Mm. And so all the stuff that he lost, his health and all this, all the stuff that he lost in chapter one is all restored. The dialogue is, is, again, what drew me back to the book all these years. So Job's friends come, and they have a very simple theology of suffering. And it is those who do what is right are blessed, mm. and those who sin are cursed. And as they're looking at this friend that they can barely recognize because Satan literally has wiped out all of his health. They apply this theology, and they look at him, and implicitly, they're thinking, we've never seen anyone as cursed as you. I mean, you're an absolute mess, and he was was a train wreck. And so their basic message to him is, you have to confess what you've done. Obviously, you've done something really terrible. Mm -hmm. You have to confess it, and if you do, your life will get better. And so what have you done? Obviously, you've done something terrible. So... There's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Eliphaz goes first. That's his basic message, you know, confess. But he's very diplomatic, and that's in chapters 4 and 5. Job rebuts and says, I haven't done anything. And then Bildad goes next and says, well, obviously you have. I mean, look at you. I mean, you're you're a train wreck. They didn't have trains then, but, you know, (laughs) essentially you're a train wreck. Job says, no, really, I haven't done anything. And Zophar says the same thing, and it gets worse and worse. The friends get angry. They get very frustrated. <laughs> they accuse Job of things that he's never done. And what you really have for seven rounds, Heath, is obviously you've done something terrible. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. No, I haven't. Yes, you have. No, really, I haven't. Yes, you have. No, really, I haven't. Obviously, you have. No, really, I haven't. For seven, seven rounds. Seven rounds. Wow. At the very end of that, Bildad basically says, we can't reason with you. We give up. It's very short, chapter 25, and that's the end of the three friends' speeches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that's a great summary of that book. And I know we'll get into it more, but you you hinted at the the poor theology of the friends that is an ancient – theology that's that's wrong and, and very current very present with and us. very present and i would say very present throughout humanity <laughs> yeah that's exactly right so when and where does this story of job take place and kind of a help us give us some context for the timeline here i'm going to answer that really quickly we don't know 
Oh. So, are you allowed to say that when you teach? You don't know. Uh, if I'm not, I shouldn't be teaching because right. there's lots of things I don't know. <laughs> I appreciate it. As a matter of fact, I love that you said that because when I was a young Christian, I thought I was completely inadequate if I couldn't answer every question. And the older I get, the more I realize I don't know and I can't know. Mm. So I think it's really important for us to be able to say, I don't know. I agree. I know I love listening to Tim Keller, and he's done a lot of great talks in, in settings that are hostile to the faith and in, in apologetics. And he, he says it right up front when there are certain questions we don't have answers to. He says, I'm going to need to know basis with yeah, God. That's right. That's, <laughs> we all are. Yeah. And God's infinite. We're never going to know all yeah. of him. But, but we can, Yeah, but we can know him. Yes, and and we can we can know more and more about him, and know more and more him over a period of time. That's right. So the short answer is, I looked up numerous commentaries about where this happened, and so Eliphaz was a Temanite, and there's a huge clue there because we think that Teman was a little bit south of the Dead Sea, and that's one of the friends that shows up. That's one of the three yep. friends. He's the first one that speaks. Job was from the land of Uz or Uz. I pronounce it Uz. And nobody nobody agrees on where that was. It could have been north, northeast, east, or southeast, per the commentaries I've read. It could literally have been anywhere from 20 miles away to hundreds of miles away. So the uh-huh. fact is we just don't know where Job was. We don't know how far apart these friends really were. And we don't really know where the other two lived. As for when it happened, I think there's a huge clue in Genesis chapter 36. It gives Esau's. So es- you know, Esau being the twin brother of Jacob, and Esau becoming Edom, and, yes. and the father of the, the Edomites. Group, yeah. So Esau's oldest son was Eliphaz. His oldest son was Teman. So I believe that the Eliphaz in the book of Job was a descendant of Esau's sons, Eliphaz's son, Teman. Okay. And there's a couple other references in the scriptures to Teman or Temanites. And so I think that Eliphaz was a Temanite, which would put this maybe a few generations after the birth of Jacob and Esau. And that's okay. what I personally believe. But but honestly, we really don't know. We don't know. But that is helpful. If if, if I'm rounding and I kind of have Abraham at, you know, 2000 BC, roughly, and Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac is going to have Esau and Jacob. That's right. You can kind of put a framework here, but we're pre-Moses. I'm confident it's pre-Moses. Yeah, yeah. which kind of was going into my next question. Is this the oldest book in the Bible? Moses is going to write the first five books of the Bible. And from a timeline standpoint, it goes back to creation. Yes. But this story taking place and being documented before Moses, is this the oldest book in the Bible? I think the fact is we don't know. I mean, that's a common question that I get. You get a lot of I don't knows. I I get a lot of I don't (laughs) knows. And the cool thing is we don't have to know. That's right. It doesn't affect the relevance or the importance of the story for us. So clearly it's not the oldest event in the Bible because to your point, there's creation in the garden and Adam and Eve. We don't know who wrote the book and we don't really know when it was written. One option as to who wrote the book is Job. Another possibility is Job's wife, which I know that how strange that must sound to everybody who's listening to this right now, but yeah. we'll get to that. And But it, another speculation is Moses wrote it, but mm. we really don't know. And by the way, it's almost certain that neither Job nor the other people featured in the book were Hebrew. Hmm. Fascinating. That's almost a sure thing. Yeah. Certainly I mean, Eliphaz yeah. appears to be an Edomite by right. the genealogy. Right. And, oh, wow. Okay. So- 
having taken this class with you and being friends with you and talking about Job several times, I know that you've said that understanding the kinds of things that can cause suffering, which if I could just go back even before that, this is one of the questions of being human is, you know, why, why is there suffering? Right. And a lot of people and philosophers and theologians have come at this. And even within Christianity, there seems to be different theological views on why is there suffering. And, but that's really important to understand in this book. What do you mean by that? So in in the class, I don't try to answer the question of why is there suffering, but let's touch on that for just a moment. Okay. I, I think I think the answer to that is probably rife with complexity that we can't begin to understand. So I think there's a couple guiding principles we have to remember. Number one, there was not suffering before there was sin. So why is there yeah. suffering? Basically, sin and disobedience create an environment where suffering is basically inevitable. We inflict a lot of suffering on ourselves. I mean, not not one on themselves personally, but mankind really is responsible for a great amount of suffering. Just yeah. look at all the wars and everything like, or crimes and things like that. Now, the other cool thing, though, about suffering in general is God absolutely uses suffering for his purposes. So I'm, I would stop short of saying he desires suffering to happen, but he definitely allows it to happen because mm. he's in control of everything. Yeah. But ultimately, there is nothing that will not ultimately testify to and ultimately bring glory to God. And certainly that happens as a result of this book. Now, if I can, I'd like to go into the things that can cause suffering Please. on the face of the earth because yeah. I do think that's really super important. And remember, the friend's theology was – those who do what is right are blessed and those who sin are cursed. Interestingly, that's not a wrong theology. That's not an erroneous theology. However, it's not complete. It's not complete. Right? So it's certainly true, and I'll give you a funny example here in a moment. <laughs> and I was going to say something else that I'm sure was really, really valuable, and yeah. I forgot what it was, Heath. I'm sorry. That's what happens when you get as old as I am. Now, maybe I'll think of it later. So I'll just go right into the six things that can cause suffering. So number one is one's own sin. And by the way, we see this this theology is very much present and alive and well in the Old Testament. And it's, it's how God dealt with Israel. Basically, mm -hmm. if you'll turn toward me and follow me, I'll bless you. Yeah. And if you turn away from me, I'll give you a series of successively greater problems and curses in order to get you to turn to me. That was foundational in the Mosaic Covenant. It was foundational. So it's not a wrong theology. And here's my example. Even though it's fairly early in the morning, Let's suppose when we leave here, I go to a bar and I get drunk. Yeah. And I, I get out of the bar and I get into my car and I'm driving on the expressway and I run into a bridge abutment and I'm disabled and disfigured and maimed and I'm in pain the rest of my life. Why am I suffering? Yeah. I'm suffering because of my own sin. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's reason number one is what Job's friends understood. Reason number two is, is we can suffer because of somebody else's sin. So we, we, I leave here and I go get drunk. You do some other things here that need to be done. You leave an hour later, right when I'm leaving the bar, and I run you off the road. Now you've hit the bridge abutment, you're disfigured, disabled, and you're in pain the rest of your life. You're suffering, why? Because mm. of my of sin, sin, right? So that's number two, we can suffer because of somebody else's sin. Number three is natural disaster. So earthquake, famine, flood, drought, extreme heat, extreme cold, typhoons, disease outbreaks, all these things, they, they don't care 
whether someone in that area is good or bad, as yeah. we would think of it. They right. don't care if someone's basically kind of a good guy or they're a crook or they're a thief or a murderer. They pick everyone up in an area not because of who they are, but because of where, where they, they are. are. Hmm. And so they're indiscriminate and they're just going to pick up, you know, a few hundred, a few thousand, hundreds of thousands of lives sometimes. So that's the third reason. Reason number four is literally only God knows. Hmm. So you've got maybe a young mom. She's committed to her husband, loves on her kids, has been devoted to God, you know, is a daily quiet time. I mean, you name it, and she gets cancer. Well, nobody knows what the outcome is going to be of that. And that in, for for a while, nobody knows if her kids are going to grow up with or without a mom. Yeah. If the husband's going to have or not have his wife. And there's no explanation for that. And does God owe us an explanation for that? I think this book speaks to that. I think this book speaks to that. So he doesn't owe us that. And there are some things that simply, I come back and say, we don't know. We don't know. Right? We don't know. Now, interestingly, number five, those four are kind of out there in the in the cloud and on blogs and commentaries and things like that. In my own reading, I've come up with two others that are very specific. Mm. One, where Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, he writes to the Corinthians that he's glad he sent them a previous letter, which we don't believe is 1 Corinthians. We think there was a letter between the right. two. So Paul refers to this previous letter, and he says, I'm glad I sent you that letter because even though it caused your sorrow, which is synonymous with suffering, so mm -hmm. even though it caused your suffering, it brought you to repentance. Mm -hmm. So clearly there is a role where God uses suffering, he uses sorrow, to draw people to him or to turn people to him or yep. both. Yep. So there's a clear purpose there. And then reason number six, uh, I draw from John chapter nine. And I love this story. When I teach the class, I spend a little bit of time on this story. So Jesus and the 12 disciples are walking and they encounter a man that the text tells us was blind from birth. Mm. Okay, so this guy has never seen his entire life. And if there's one thing he knows for sure, if we can crawl into his head for a moment, he knows he's never going to see. Like that's just a given. I mean, it's not even, not even a thought in his head that, that, that that's ever going to change. Now, here's the part I love. The disciples, who were the closest people on earth to God, basically, they're the closest people on earth to Emmanuel, to God with us. They asked Jesus a two-word, multiple-choice question <laughs> that is rife with implications. So not, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you remember what the word, what the question is, the two words? Who sinned? Who sinned? That, yes. That's the Now, let's think about that question for a moment, because baked into the question is an assumption. Mm. And the assumption is... Sin causes all suffering. Yeah, and the, and the assumption specifically here is somebody sinned. Somebody. Somebody sinned. Yeah. We're not really asking if somebody sinned. Yeah. We're asking who it was. So not that different of a framework of Job's friends. Correct. It's, he, it's exactly the same framework, although his friends were slightly narrower, which we'll come back okay, to. Okay, okay. <laughs> so the disciples, so these 12 men who are closest, right, they wrote books that we read. Yeah. We revere them. Yeah. We talk about, we want to meet them and shake their hand in heaven. I don't know if we shake hands in heaven or not, but maybe we do. Yes. And they got it wrong. Mm. <laughs> okay. But this is a grand opportunity for us to learn something. So they, I love how they ask the creator of the universe, who sinned? There's a built-in assumption. Someone yeah. sinned. We just need to know. Uh, that's obvious. We just yeah. need to know who it was. <laughs> so Jesus answers 
Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh. I'm sorry. I forget. They offered him the two multiple choice yeah. choices. So A yeah. is him. Yeah. B is his parents. parents. Yeah. Now let's keep in mind something before I go further. It says he was blind from birth. How bad would you have to sin in the womb to be born <laughs> blind? Like, is that really even thinkable? I mean, is that really possible? I don't know how it works with God. Right, but we're going to find out that's not what happened anyway. So I love I love this whole setup. So Jesus's answer is what? Uh, I don't remember the exact phrase. Basically, no one. Yeah, yeah. So let's so let's say the answers they offer him are A him, yeah. B his parents. Jesus says C none yeah, of the above, yeah, not, not A or B, none yeah. of the above. <laughs> and D he this is what I this is the magic of this verse. I shouldn't use the word magic with God, but this is this is the just extreme value of this. He mm. says. He was born blind so that the work of God could be manifest in his life. Now, what he's effectively saying Mm. in practical terms is, guys, you don't understand this, but you're about to understand. He was born blind for this moment. Like this is the moment that gives purpose to the fact that he was born blind. And and it's for you to see what I'm going to do. Then he spits on the dirt, rubs it on the man's eyes, tell him to wash off. He does, and he can see again. Then he's dragged in front of the Pharisees and kind of grilled by them. And he, everyone should just read the whole chapter because this man acquits himself beautifully. We don't even know his name. Mm. He's one of the people I want to meet in heaven because he just does a fantastic job of not letting the Pharisees suck him down this, down this path. But this whole interaction proves that sometimes suffering is simply for God's glory. And there isn't any other explanation for it. So if we go back to Job's friends— of our six reasons, one's own sin, of, of the six causes, potential causes of suffering on the earth, one's own sin, somebody else's sin, natural disaster, only God knows, to bring about the repentance of the person suffering, and literally to show God's glory. Mm. Job's friends are stuck on reason number one, that he must have sinned, but it's all they knew. They, they, didn't, they couldn't comprehend the rest of these. And so their theology is not wrong, and I think that's important. But it's not always right. It's not mutually exclusive. It's not the only reason. So it's incomplete. It's not wrong, but it's incomplete. And they're stuck on it for the entire book. Wow. That's so helpful. I knew, well, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, and I knew it was going to be fun and interesting, and it's already exceeding that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But that is all the time we have for this week. Scott's going to continue to join me in the following weeks as we continue this conversation on the book of Job. Thanks for being here today, Scott. Oh, I love it. Thank you for inviting me. It's a privilege. Yeah. See you next week. Okay. Thank you for joining Fellowship Around the Table. If you would like to learn more, go to fbctulsa.org.